Okay, we're carrying on our study through the book of First Kings, and we've come to probably one of my favourite uh, portions in the entire Bible. There's just so much, it's such a rich um, portion here, and there's so many lessons to learn. So uh, let's just bow our hearts once again as we, uh, we come humbly before God's Word together. Well, Father, as we turn to these scriptures now, Lord, we just want you to speak to us. And, Lord, illuminate these words, these pages to us. Help us to understand, Lord, not just the historical context, not just the events that took place long ago, but, Lord, how these should impact our lives right here, right now. That, Lord, we should be challenged by these things. That, Lord, you should stir us up. That we should desire to live lives like we will see of Elijah, who was just an ordinary man like us. And so, Father, use this time to challenge us, we pray, and build us up, encourage us in our walk with you. Father, take my words now, Lord, and use them for your glory. Lord, stir our hearts, we pray, soften them, and make them ready to receive. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, chapter 17 of 1 Kings. Let me just set the scene. We've been going through, obviously, for a number of weeks now through the book of Kings. This is the situation that we've got it so far. So we're around 60 years on from the dividing of the kingdom. So we have, of course, Saul, the first king of Israel, um, largely appointed through the people's impatience rather than God's uh, design. But then David comes to the throne, the one that God had always intended to be the king. And eventually David gets there, he rules and reigns over the nation. The nation uh, starts to subdue all their enemies. And then we move into the time following David of Solomon, And it's the greatest time the nation has ever known, certainly in terms of economic growth and the wealth of the nation and uh, the influence and the the power of the nation. Uh, They subdue all the nations around about them. Israel are one of the dominant world powers at this time. Hard to kind of imagine and conceptualize in today's world, but this is as it was then. But we're 60 years on from that. And the kingdoms divided into north and south after Solomon, his son, Rehoboam, um, ends up being harsh with the people. And they go after, they follow Jeroboam. And we have this division, the north and the south. Ten tribes follow Jeroboam in the north and then down the south in Judah, following on David's line. Because David had been faithful and God is going to keep his promises to David. God allows a king to remain on the throne of Judah. But we've seen over the last few weeks seven kings that have come and gone in the northern kingdom, kings of Israel, and they've all been bad. They've all had this continual refrain. We start with Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and we keep reading, who led all Israel to sin. And then we read with each of the subsequent kings that they followed after Jeroboam in all his ways. Again, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who made all Israel to sin. That's his tag for all eternity. And we see them just getting successively worse. And we come now, as we did at the end of the study last week, to Ahab, the son of Omri. Omri is uh, the seventh. Ahab now the eighth king. Uh, Eighth in scripture often speaks of new beginnings. Sadly, that's not the case here. There's not beginning anything fresh. This is just uh, getting worse and worse, a downward spiral. Interestingly of Omri, it was said, and we looked last time, but Omni wrought evil in the eyes of the Lord. And did worse than all that were before him. I mean, what a, a statement to have recorded for eternity in the Bible. That Omri did worse than all the kings that were before him. You know, and it's kind of hard to imagine how things could get worse. And we tend to look at our world today, our society, and we think things are bad. It wasn't as bad as this. You know, the, at this stage, people are, are getting into 
not just idolatry, but they've got rid of, in a sense, the golden calves that Jeroboam had set up, which had been representing God. You know, just as they'd done, as, as Aaron had done, and we read of in the book of Exodus, the golden calf there was supposed to be, this is your God that led you from Egypt and led you across the Red Sea and so on. So they just had a representation, something they could worship, some physical uh, thing they could worship to represent God. Of course, that's still idolatry. And Jeroboam was doing the same. You see, in a sense, Jeroboam's initial intentions weren't necessarily evil, He wasn't trying to lead people away from God, but he didn't want people to go back down to Judah and end up worshipping at the temple because of the three feasts each year. They would have to go down to the temple to worship. And so he sets up these other centres of worship. And in a sense, he just says, look, this is your God. This is the God that you've worshipped through all these years. But now we come to the time of Omri and particularly Ahab now. And that's just been done away with. And now they're, they're full-blown into idolatry, worshipping the pagan gods and goddesses. We're going to see Baal, this pagan deity, worshipped, and Ashtaroth as well, the, the female equivalent. And they were getting into all sorts of horrible things. And then we read, And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Elijah here is the the right man for the right job, and he comes in at the right time. This is incredible, because he's introduced with a conjunction, and, yet we're not given any background about Elijah. We don't know anything really about him at all. We don't know anything about his family. We presume, and we'll look at the meaning of his name in a moment, that he had godly parents. Certainly he's an Israelite. That's something that comes out from the, from the text, as we'll see. But we don't know his age. We don't know whether he was a young man or whether he was an old man, whether he was in his prime, probably about my age, that kind of, you know. Uh, we don't know. But I think that's, that's intentional. I think God allows that to be the case because we're told, and we'll look in a moment in the book of James, that Elijah was just like you and I. And I think if we were given an age and we knew that he was a young man or a, uh, an older, more experienced, mature man, you know, we, we could tend to say, well, when I get there or if I was back there. And we can make excuses as to why this isn't us. But really, Elijah is presented here as a kind of role model, the way that we should be. You know, it doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, God can still use you. Just a few comments about Elijah. We'll come back and look in a bit more at that verse in just a moment. But we're told he's a Tishbite. It doesn't mean a lot to us. But there's a, a city or a town in northern Israel, Tishba. And obviously that's believed to be where he came from. But he could have just been inhabitant there. He may not have been born there. He may have been born elsewhere. There. We're told again um, from Gilead. Again, that's the area around Galilee. So again, northern Israel. Um, but his name means Yahweh is my God. You know, as he's growing up, every time people call his name, every time his parents call his name, Yahweh is my God. And that's the, the continual refrain of this man's life. As I said, it indicates that he had godly parents to give him such a name. But interestingly, we're going to find that he becomes the major character in the book of Kings, even more so than Solomon. And that's interesting because, you know, there's so much print we're given in the other chapters about Solomon, but in terms of this man's life and what we find that he does... This man becomes very, very significant. He's mentioned more times in the New Testament than any other prophet. 
Elijah is a very interesting character. Interestingly, he's not quoted in the New Testament for the simple reason he didn't write anything. At least not that we have record of. You know, he's not a prophet like Ezekiel or like Isaiah or Jeremiah that have written great books for us and you know, speaking prophetically of things that would come. You know, Elijah didn't do anything like that. You know, he's a prophet, but not in a, a predictive sense. You know, we were talking yesterday at the men's prayer breakfast about the gift of prophecy. And in essence, I mean, Elijah is very much of that type. He's got a, a gift. He's speaking into current situations and bringing clarity as God stirs him. The only prediction we actually have, really, of his is a weather report that we've just seen him give to, to Ahab. We'll come back and, and comment on that in just a moment, but... We also find that there's eight miracles that are recorded of Elijah. Firstly, we're going to see stopping the rain for three and a half years. We'll comment on that in a moment. But also we find that he was then fed by ravens, by these unclean birds. According to Jewish law, ravens were unclean. And twice a day he's fed by these birds. Then we find that he does a miracle. He multiplies grain and oil and they last through the whole of this period of famine where there's no rain and so on. We find that he also raises a Gentile widow's son to life. He calls down fire from heaven. We then see him at his command as effectively the rain starts again. We then see him also running for 30 miles. You know, people tend to today put a lot of emphasis on uh, physical fitness, but... You know, even those who were doing the marathon didn't quite do that. And not only does he run 30 miles, he outruns the chariots as well. And then we see also he's supernaturally sustained for 40 days and 40 nights as God takes him down to Horeb, where the Lord gave Moses the, the law. So those are the miracles. We're going to see those as we go through looking at this man. But Elijah is unique in many ways. I mean, again, firstly, the miracles that he does, stopping the rain, calling down fire, uh, from heaven, raising it. Nobody had done that before. To ask God for these things, to have the faith to ask, is an incredible thing on its own. Nobody, you don't have a case study. You know, when we get to Elisha, who will follow on as prophet after Elijah, we'll find that he raises a child from the dead. But he's already had the record of Elijah. When we look in the New Testament, we see in the book of Acts. We find people there raised from the dead. And of course the disciples had a case study in a sense. They had the example that Jesus had given them. Jesus, you know, a number of Jairus' daughter and Lazarus and others. But Elijah had no, nothing to look at. He had no scripture to turn to, to be encouraged in these things. Interestingly, he doesn't die either. He's taken alive into heaven. He's raptured. And for you and I, that makes him also a very interesting individual to study. In scripture, he's seen as the personification of the prophets, even though he writes no book as such. You know, the Bible speaks about two witnesses that the Lord has given. They are the law and the prophets. In the accounts that we have in Luke's gospel of the rich man and Lazarus, there, the rich man who's suffering in Hades is told you know, that his brothers who are still alive on the earth have the law and the prophets. They're the two witnesses that God has given. The law is there to convince us 
It will convict our hearts. Psalm 19 tells us that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The law is there to show that we're sinners, that we all need a saviour. That's what the law does. That's the purpose of the law, to show that we're guilty. You know, you know, maybe what it's like, some of you may just have to imagine this, but if you're driving along in a car and you're going too fast, I know some of you never do that, but, you know, if you're doing that and suddenly you see a police car, the realisation comes in of the law. You know, it brings home the fact that what you're doing is not right. You know, you may have felt no guilt before you see the police car, but suddenly you see the police car and the law convicts you of your sin. And that's what the law does. The law is there to show us that we have fallen by God's standard, that we've fallen short of his holy standard. But then we also have the prophets, and Peter speaks of the more sure word of prophecy. Prophecy is there to convince us intellectually, so the law really for the heart, the prophets for the intellect, to convince us, to prove to us. I was talking to somebody this week, and I was saying, you know, if you would let me, I can prove to you the Bible's true. I can prove that the Bible really is the word of God. I can prove it. Absolutely confident I can prove it. But that wouldn't be enough. Because the problem is not about the amount of information or knowledge you have or don't have. The problem is the heart. And unless people are willing to give over the rights to themselves to God, they'll never see. We find Elijah, of course, also appear on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses again and with Jesus. Very unique individual in these aspects. We're also told that he's going to return before the second coming. We, we find, of course, John the Baptist comes as an Elijah-like herald announcing the coming of the Lord. But in the book of Malachi, and maybe we'll look at that maybe next week, the prophecy in Malachi, but we're told that Elijah will return before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And if you look in the book of Revelation, it seems to be that Elijah is one of those two witnesses. And we can identify him because, of again, the two witnesses we have of the law and the prophets, the two representatives typically in scripture of the law and the prophets were Moses and Elijah. And when you look at the miracles that are done by the two witnesses in Revelation 11, they're exactly what Moses and Elijah did. And we find that one of the things that occur during that period of tribulation is the stopping of rain. That thing that Elijah did and does, and we're going to look at it in just a moment. But you know, he's not unique in that he is just an ordinary man. And you know, we look in the book of James, and we read James chapter 5, 17 and 18. Elijah was a man of like passions with us. He's just saying he was like us, he felt like us, he had emotions like we do. He was no superman, just like you and I. And he prayed fervently. Well, that's the key. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again. And the heavens gave rain. And the earth brought forth her fruits. You know, this is just quite incredible. You think about it. We're told that there's 330 million cubic miles of ocean on the earth. 1.5 trillion tons of rain per day. And he asked God just to stop that process. Just put all that on hold for a moment, God. You know, we would never be so, may I put it this way, foolish as to ask for something like that. We tend to think things through. And maybe Elijah probably didn't know that information. But it didn't change the fact that he asked God for something that is just impossible. But he asks. 
in faith. It's an incredible place that he, we find him, this, this individual, he just steps onto the scene. And you know, the question though, when did he start to pray? Yeah, it wasn't just as he walked into Ahab's court he starts to pray. Clearly he'd been praying. I wonder for how long. I wonder how long he'd been praying before he feels convicted to go. And the next question really is, why did he start to pray? What was it that stirred this man in the first place to start to pray? Why? Well, I think we have an answer as we look in Scripture because I think this man was convicted by God's Word. As he looked at the state of the nation... In 1 Kings 19, we won't get there this morning, but we see there, just picking up verse 13, suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? This is a portion later in the the narrative in the text. And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. We see that this man was passionate about the things of God. And he speaks with first-hand knowledge of God's covenant. And he says, they've broken your covenant. And that grieved Elijah as he looked at the world in which he was now living. He was seeing the mess that the northern kingdom had become. And when he's asked this question by God, he says, I'm very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. Now, I think possibly part of the scripture that he's thinking of and referencing at this point, and no doubt what stirred him, was in the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to go there in just a moment. But I just want to just just look at, again, this man just steps onto this scene. No real background, as I've said already. Psalm 39, 3, there we read, My heart was hot within me while I was musing, the fire burned. Then spoke I with my tongue. I think the same thing is happening with Elijah. You know, think of the situation here. The boldness to suddenly walk into 10 Downing Street and confront the Prime Minister. I mean, that's in essence what he's doing. You know, to have that kind of confidence to go and to rebuke somebody that is in a position of authority. But I think that Elijah had that fire burning, just as we read in Psalm 39 there. Jeremiah, in chapter 29, says, Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name, speaking of God, But then he says, but his word was in my heart as a burning fire, shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing. I could not stay, and I could not keep it in. You know, those who are in love with God, those who look at what's going on in the world, those that look at the way the world is going, can't stay quiet. Those who are aware that there are people out there that are going to hell because they've not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a fire there. And I just promise you to do something. However rash that may seem to, to the natural mind. Spiritually, Elijah was stirred to the point that he goes and presents himself to the king of the nation. Without an invitation. Without even being known or anything about this, this situation. Just walks in. And I think this is what had stirred him. Back in Deuteronomy 11, we read, picking up verse 8. Therefore shall you keep the commandments which I command you this day. 
that you may be strong and go in and possess the land whether you go to possess it and that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord swore unto your fathers to give them and to their seed a land flowing with milk and honey this is the promise that God had given to the nation the idea of a land flowing with milk and honey of course if there's milk there's going to be cattle livestock honey well there's going to be bees there's going to be plants and flowers and the land is just going to be beautiful, growing and fertile. And that's the whole idea of this land flowing with milk and honey. And that's what God had promised them. For the land where thou go in to possess it, it's not as the land of Egypt from whence you came out, where thou sowest thy seed and waterest it with thy foot as a garden of herbs. In other words, you know, taking a watering can effectively and going on watering the piece of ground because there's no rain, there's not enough moisture or dew or whatever necessary to allow these plants and herbs and things to grow. So you've got to do it all by hand. That's the way it was for them in Egypt. But verse 11 carries on. But the land where you go to possess it is a land of hills and valleys and drinks water of the rain of heaven. I just paint this picture that the land that God was giving to them it was such a beautiful place. You know, Elijah, sitting at home, reading the Torah, reading the scriptures. And reading and looking at his window and seeing none of that. Seeing a land that's becoming barren. Seeing a, a kingdom, a king, that is intent on worshipping a false god. Seeing children sacrificed to idols. And so many other horrific things. Deuteronomy carries on and says, verse 12, A land which the Lord thy God cares for. For the eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it from the beginning of the year even unto the end of the year. And it shall come to pass if you hearken diligently unto my commandments which I command you this day to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul that I will give you the rain of your land in his due season, the first rain, the latter rain, that thou mayest gather in thy corn and thy wine and thy oil. And I will send grass in thy fields for thy cattle, that thou mayest go, thou mayest eat and be full. Take heed to yourself, that your heart be not deceived, and you turn not aside and serve other gods and worship them. And Elijah is now sitting here looking at this and seeing that that's exactly what's happening. The God has promised them all this blessing, and what have they done with the blessings that God has given? Well, they're using everything for their own pleasure. And they have now gone aside and they've started serving other gods and worshipping them openly. Verse 17 of Deuteronomy 11 carries on and says, And then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you, and he shut up heaven, that there be no rain, and that the land yield not her fruit, unless you perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth you. Now, Elijah reading this, thinking God has said that if we go after other gods, he's going to stop the rain. And then hearing no doubt what's going on in Samaria, what Ahab is doing. And we talked last time about Ahab's wife, this Gentile queen, Jezebel. This wicked woman, and we're going to see more of her in the coming weeks. No doubt hearing some of the things that are going on. And this man, Elijah, so convicted in his heart. Somebody's got to say something. Somebody's got to do something. And be mindful that God has said, if this carries on, I'm going to stop the rain. And I think it's on the back of that that Elijah is stirred to go and see King Ahab. 
Deuteronomy 28, 23 also says, speaking of the same thing, that the heaven that is over thy head shall be brass. Again, solid, no rain coming down. Just painting a, a picture of, kind of a very bleak situation. But then we get the power of prayer because Elijah doesn't just, this is a good idea, off I go. You see, it's also Chambers, I think, that said that the need doesn't necessarily constitute the call. That's a great piece of advice for us. Just because there's a need doesn't mean that that's the call. So what does Elijah do? Well, no doubt prompted by God, he starts to pray. He starts to pray about this situation. He starts to pray about the idolatry in the nation. He starts to pray about the situation with the weather. And I don't know how long he does this. But he was on his own, you see, Elijah. There wasn't anybody else that we're told of that was a companion that was there by his side. No one to support him. No one to encourage him. Not like we are this morning. We're in a body of people. Lots of people around us to encourage us. You see, he was just one man. But he could see that his world was falling apart. Yeah, he was seeing that marriage was being discarded. The people were entering into all sorts of immoral relationships. Sexual sin was rampant in Israel at this time because they were worshipping these foreign deities. He was seeing all of this go on, but he was just one man. You know, what difference really could he make? And I've got no doubt that as he's praying and starting to think over these things, that Satan was putting these thoughts in his head. But Elijah, it's just you. Nobody else cares. Let it go. How could he change the course of his nation? Just one individual. What about you this morning? What about me? You're just one individual. You know, what effect could Elijah have on the politics of his day? What effect can you and I have on the politics of our day? Are we content just to say, well, I can't do anything. I'd like to, but... We see, Elijah, if he'd have just sat there, would have done nothing. But he does do something. You see, God calls him to pray. And that's what this man does. He prays. You see, we tend to think that we must do things. And we'll ask God to bless the things that we do. We'll pray and ask God to bless them. No, no, what we should do is pray. And then just see what God wants to do through those prayers. Prayer is the most powerful thing that God has given. God has chosen to work in answer to the prayers of his saints. You know, prayer is not overcoming a reluctance in God. It's not trying to convince God to do something he doesn't want to do. Prayer is your opportunity to partner in God in what he's doing, partner with God in what he's doing. But God has chosen to work only in response to the prayers of his people. You see, God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He can do whatever he wants. But he's not just going to do whatever he wants. He's going to work through his people. He's given us the opportunity to pray. To pray for our nation. To pray about all the idolatry, all the immorality, all the things that are going on in our nation. All the things that are displeasing to God. We can pray. And you may say, I'm just one man. Just one person. It makes I can't make a, a difference. Well, let me just share this with you. Some of you may have heard this before, but... There was a man called Edward Kimball. He had a burden for his Sunday school students. He wanted them to know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. 
So he made it his kind of personal mission to go and start to see them. He went to one of the young lads who came to his Sunday school. He went to the shoe store where this young lad worked. And he led him to Christ in the shoe store. The name of that young man was Dwight L. Moody. Dwight L. Moody went on to become an evangelist whose ministry rocked two continents. And whilst he was preaching in the British Isles, Moody spoke in a small chapel pastored by Frederick Brotherton Meyer, another name you may be familiar with. And in his sermon, Moody told this emotionally charged story of a Sunday school teacher who knew, who he knew personally, who went to every student in his class and won them to Christ. Well, that message changed Pastor Meyer's entire ministry, inspiring him to become an evangelist. And over the next years, Meyer went to America and preached there several times. He was in a place in Northfield in Massachusetts. And a, a confused young preacher sitting in the back row heard Meyer say, If you are not willing to, go, to give God everything, are you willing to be made willing? Well, that remark, as Meyer said it, stirred this life of a young man by the name of J. Wilbur Chapman to accept the call of God on his life. Chapman went on to become one of the most effective evangelists of his time and uh, volunteered to help set up Chapman's crusades and learned to preach by watching him. Well, another volunteer that again watched Chapman was a man by the name of Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday eventually took over Chapman's ministry, becoming one of the most effective evangelists of the 20th century. And in the great arenas in America, Billy Sunday's preaching turned thousands to Christ. Inspired by a sermon that Billy Sunday gave at a crusade in 1924 in Charlotte, North Carolina, a committee of Christians there decided that they were going to get together, they prayed, and they committed themselves to reaching that city for Christ. As a result of this, they invited a man by the name of Mordecai Ham to come and hold a series of evangelistic meetings to reach the town, the area in which they were. Well, at one of those meetings that Mordecai Ham was preaching at, there was a tall 16-year-old that was sat in this large crowd, absolutely spellbound by the message of this old preacher who seemed to be shouting and waving his hands and moving his fingers and gesticulating and so on. And For night after night, this young man attended. And finally, he went forward and gave his life to Christ. And that teenager's name was Billy Graham. Billy Graham has doubtlessly communicated the gospel of Jesus to more people than anyone else in the history of the world. But just remember how this sequence all began. With a nobody. Just one man by the name of Edward Kimball. Concerned about the students in his Sunday school class. You know, because of that passion that he had to read them for Jesus, he changed the world. Millions upon millions have been affected by his decisions to go to that shoe store. And millions more continue to feel the impact. So don't say this morning that you can't do it, that it doesn't matter. Because you don't know the part of the plan that God has for you if you're just willing to be made willing. If you're just willing to allow God to work in you by stirring your heart to pray. 
Look what Elijah accomplishes. I just think again, just the, the picture of Elijah walking into the court of the king. We're told that Elijah was a hairy man, probably somewhat disheveled. You know, he walks in, everybody kind of stops talking as he's walking in the room. Like, who's this man? Who let him in? Where's security? And he walks up to the king and tells him what the weather's going to be like for the next three and a half years and walks out again. And probably everybody's looking at each other thinking, what just happened? Just incredible boldness on his part. And probably at that particular moment, a lot of people were probably like, oh, well, don't worry about it. But I wonder what Ahab was thinking. I wonder if he was convicted. Well, as a result then, the Lord, verse 2 says, The word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan. And it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. Uh, this probably wasn't what Elijah was thinking was going to happen next in his ministry. You know, after going before the king, surely a, at least a national tour was, was, was a possibility. But he goes into obscurity. And he goes to this place, the brook, the brook Cherith, means cutting or separation, literally whittling. That's where the Lord takes him next. You know, I'm sure that he understood the name of this place. I wonder as he's going, he's thinking, Lord, I'm not sure I quite like the idea of this. But he goes here and he's fed, as we're told in scripture here, by the ravens every morning, every evening. They bring him food and drink. So he went and did according unto the word of the Lord. For he went and dwelt by the book of Jericho, that is before Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning, and bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank of the brook. Interestingly enough, there was a, an account, and I was listening to Pastor Joe Foch, and he was speaking of a missionary he knew. Um, and he was recounting the, the story of this chap who had been a Christian in prison, and I believe it was in China somewhere, um, and he'd been put in this cell, a very small cell, and effectively left to die. But the first day, apparently a rat made his way into the cell and just dropped a carrot and went. And every day after that, he did the same thing. He brought a piece of fruit or vegetable or something in. Apparently one day he had a visit from somebody else, another Christian, and that day the rat brought two pieces of fruit. I wonder if the, the guest said, oh yeah, please, can I have a bit of what the rat brought us? <laughs> but it's a, a, a true account of an individual who was in prison for Jesus Christ. Well, Elijah here, similar kind of situation, that these birds, you know, feeding him. And it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up. <laughs> you know, does that happen in your life, that... We kind of get comfortable where we are, and then suddenly something dries up. Could be a relationship, could be finances, could be a job, a career, something. Something dries up. Because there'd been no rain in the land. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongs to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman to sustain thee. This place, Zarephath, an interesting place, it means crucible. You know, after you've just been in a place that means whittling and God's been doing some work on you there, isolated, no one to talk to, no one to encourage you, 
And God says, guess where we're going next? We're going to the crucible. This was a place that they were used to smelt metals, to melt things down. And, you know, you've probably heard these things before, but metals typically, and gold is a, a great example, it's put into a crucible. It's heated up so that all the impurities come to the surface. And those impurities, all the dross is then taken off. And the smith knows when the metal is pure because they can see the reflection. And, you know, that speaks very much of you and I, you know, the way God is working with us. That God allows us sometimes to go through these crucibles so that the dross all comes to the surface. You know, all of our impatience, all of the, the things that we think we understand or the things we think we want out of life, our own plans and dreams. And, you know, because often we get frustrated. It's simply because our own plans have been frustrated. And God allows all those things to get burnt away. You know, God is working to that time when we just become reflections of him. But it's not something that happens in a kind of a comfortable sitting room environment. The Lord allows us to go through these very difficult situations. Proverbs 17 verse 3 says, The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. Peter picks up on this theme in the New Testament. He says in First Peter chapter 1 verse 6, Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations, trials literally, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. You see, we're being got ready. You know, we're a bride that's getting ready for a wedding day. You know, I'm sure if you're a parent, maybe you've had a child, that's a daughter that's got married, or, you know, your own wife maybe, at the time of getting married, the preparation that goes in. I know how much preparation goes into just going out on a normal day. But wedding days, how special they are. And yes, she was late, you know, but... But worth it. <laughs> but we are like that. We are getting ready. All the things of this world are being stripped away. You know, the, the Jewish wedding is, is a lovely picture. Um, and one of the things that we find is that the bride is accompanied by a chaperone. Very much like the Holy Spirit. And that person will be there to help them remove all the impurities of the world. They'd have typically a thing called the mikvah, which is a ritual bath, to cleanse. And they take off things like nail polish and all the things that maybe they had on previously. Everything is cleansed and got ready. Well, that's what God's doing with us. We're being washed by the water of the word, getting ready for the appearing of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful day that's going to be. But you know, there's a lot of difficult times that we may have to go through first as God works in us just as he was working in Elijah and we read so he arose and went to Zarephath and when he came to the gate of the city behold the woman the widow woman was there gathering of sticks and he called to her and said fetch me I pray thee a little water in a vessel that I may drink and as she was going to fetch it he called to her and said oh by the way on the way could you get me something to eat typical man huh but the response probably wasn't what he was expecting. And she said, as the Lord thy God lives. Now notice she says, as the Lord thy God. She recognizes him as an Israelite. 
The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the Lord thy God. This is, by the way, this place now is Gentile territory. This is the area where Jezebel would have come from. This is right in the heart of Baal worshipping country. So she says, as the Lord thy God lives, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel. And a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks that I may go in and dress it for me and my son that we may eat and die. You know, welcome to Zarephath. This is the way it is. And Elijah said unto her, fear not. Go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first and bring it unto me. And after make for thee and for thy son. And he carries on and says, for thus says the Lord God of Israel. Now I'm not sure what her impression was of Israel. She's probably aware of the, the mess. These kings that have been continually changing every few years. Someone new seems to be coming to the throne. Getting into all this kind of pagan worship and so on. But nevertheless, he says, For the Lord God of Israel, the barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did according to the saying of Elijah, and she and he and her house as in this context, her son as well, did eat many days. Now, I'm not sure how many days, but the implication is, I think, uh, from the commentaries, the Hebrew implies about a year that they're together. And Elijah is just lodging with this lady. And the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. So in the morning, they're getting up, they're making their pancakes, they're having breakfast, and there's nothing left, there's nothing to shake out. And then at lunchtime, they go to it again. And there's, there's just enough there for the next meal. And I wonder what the little boy was thinking. Can I have a look? Can I have a look? Is, 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 it, is there oil in there again? Is there flour? Is, is it back? And every day waking up with that excitement of God's provision. You know, God could have given them everything in one go. But God doesn't do that. God keeps us with our eyes on him. And so often we go through situations where we go on that day by day seeking God journey as it were. Just as the children of Israel in the, the wilderness, you know the manna that fell? It was just enough for the day. In fact if you kept it more than a day, apart from on the Sabbath, you know, if you kept it for more than a day it would go rotten and mouldy. You know God wants us as his children to continually be coming back to him. You know, I don't want my children to say that they love me on a Saturday and then that's it till next Saturday. It was lovely this week. I came home and I just got home in time one night to uh, to see Marla just before she was going to bed. And she just done this little piece of paper and it just says, to my daddy, I love you very much. That was it. But you know, I can hear that every day of the week. I don't mind. But you know, God wants to hear that of us as well. God wants to have us going to him. And it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick. And his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. And she said unto Elijah, What have I to do with thee, O man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? You see... Way back at the beginning of this relationship, as Elijah arrives at Zarephath, she was getting ready to die. She'd kind of come to that place realizing that there was no food left, that she was going to have to let go of her son. 
And no doubt that was tearing her heart. And Elijah steps onto the scene and suddenly gives her hope. But now her son dies. And it's, you know, all this turmoil again. She's already lost her husband. And the son is young enough that that obviously wouldn't have been that long ago. Asking God, why? Why do you allow these things to happen? Well, because God is a good God. You know, we don't understand everything this side of eternity. Paul said we see through a glass darkly. But there's going to come a day when we see everything clearly. And what we'll find is, just as Psalm 119 verse 68 tells us, that God is good and does good. I had opportunity to talk to a friend of mine this week whose daughter died when she was very young. And he was asking the question, why would God allow that? And the answer that I gave, the answer to that question is, if through God taking that child, you and your wife and your sons come to know Jesus Christ, in the light of eternity, the death of that child would have been worth every bit of the heartache that you feel now. You know, we don't understand all these things. And sometimes God doesn't allow us to understand them. But God is good and does good. And she's here thinking, well, you know, maybe you're just coming to point out my sin because she's part of this idolatrous Gentile nation. But he says to her, give me thy son. And he took him out of her bosom and carried him up into a loft where he abode and laid him upon his own bed. Now this is an incredible thing, because once again, this has never ever happened in the history of the world to this point. He's going to ask God for something that nobody else had dared ask God. What kind of prayer life have you got to have, to have that boldness and confidence? And he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourned by slaying her son? You see, the also bit, because he's aware that judgment has been brought upon the land because of the iniquity, because the rain is no longer falling, there's famine everywhere. But he's saying, why this son also? And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. Now, three times Elijah does this. You know, the first time, nothing happens seemingly. I wonder how Elijah felt. How would you have felt? You know, you ask for something and God doesn't do it the first time. Do you think, well, well, maybe I shouldn't ask anymore? You know, there are people that say that if you ask more than once, it's a lack of faith. Well, that's, that's not what the Bible says. Three times. The second time, nothing. But the third time, Elijah determined, because he knows the God to whom he's praying. I pray that this child's soul come into him again. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber into the house and delivered him unto his mother. And Elijah said, See, thy son lives. And it's kind of like a, don't doubt God. It's not a, kind of, told you so, kind of condescending type of comment. And the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know, that thou art a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is true. What a great comment from this lady who has grown up in an idol-worshipping, gentle nation. And even though they'd seen this miracle with the food going on day after day after day, 
This one thing, this resurrection, is the thing that brings her life. As she puts her trust in Jesus Christ. And what are we told in Corinthians? That the resurrection is the, the bedrock and the basis of our faith. That's what brings us life. Our hope in the resurrection. You know, this world is not all there is. We have something so much better. You know, people put so much effort and energy into this life. And, you know, people go to the gym and spend lots of time and effort and money trying to keep fit and prolong this life as much as they can. And, you know, there's some really healthy people that die. But they still die. You know, there's some people that are in really good shape when they die. But they still die. And as we said before, you know, Jesus didn't come to solve the problem of, of hunger or poverty or any of those other things. Jesus came to solve our biggest problem, which was death. We weren't designed to cope with death. That was never part of God's original plan. Death is a result of sin. And it's this resurrection that brings this woman to this hope and belief that God is who he says he was. And Elijah, as his servant, as his representative, was speaking the things that were true. What a transformation. What a great comfort. So, we fall to here. We'll pick up next time. But down in Israel, Jezebel, while this is going on, is killing the prophets of the Lord. But meanwhile, in this Baal country... We don't know for certain, we're not given the details, but I'm pretty sure that a revival starts to break out here. As this woman suddenly is transformed, what would all her neighbours and friends think as they hear this? As they hear about this resurrection? And we're going to see that Jezebel is none too pleased about all of these things as we pick it up, but all that aside, the real point of this morning is one person can make a difference. But we need to pray. Let's bow our hearts. Father, let us become people that pray. Give us a desire and a hunger to pray. Lord, help us to see, Lord, in your word how this country, our nation, has moved so far away from your laws. Father, just as Israel had rejected the covenant you'd made with them, Lord, so this nation has turned its back on you. And Lord, we know that the devil would love to think, or get us to think, what can one life do? Father, we recognize, and we see so often in your word, what one life full of the Holy Spirit can accomplish. So Lord, we say, as Isaiah prayed when he was before your throne, Lord, here I am, send me. Lord, as individuals, as a fellowship of believers, whatever it is you want to do in this town, in this area, in this country, Lord, we want you to use us. We want to be obedient and we want to pray. But Lord, to start with, just teach us to pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.